Hello and welcome to The Big Intermission, a podcast about the future of the theater industry. I'm Emily Kling, and today I am joined by Russell Granite, the president and CEO of New 42. Russell was formerly at Lincoln Center for the Performing Arts, which is where he and I first met, and he served as acting president, and prior to that was the executive vice president of education, community engagement, and international. Russell has many, many years of arts and education experience, having founded the International Consulting Group, Arts Education Resource, and for many years worked at the Center for Arts Education in NYC. He is also a conservatory graduate of the London Academy of Music and Dramatic Art, and Russell did his undergraduate studies at Emerson College and received his master's degree from the Steinhardt School of Education, New York University. Today, Russell and I talk about how New 42 quickly adapted its programming so that it was online by the Monday after the theater shut down on Friday, March 13th. The staff took the weekend to reimagine what artistic and educational programming looks like online, which was the catalyst to the wildly popular Arts Break series. I'm including the link in the episode notes, but just so you can also hear it here, you can learn more at newvictory.org slash artsbreak. Russell and I also talk about how he leads during a global pandemic and what leadership lessons he has learned during this time. So without further ado, I'm just going to start the episode. All right. Should we just start then? We should just start. Let me slurp my tea first. Yeah. Anyone who's listening, there might be tea sound effects. (laughs) So just know that Um, we're both drinking tea right now. It's a cold January day. Russell, thank you so much for joining Sure, my pleasure. Thank you for having me. I'd love to start with asking you to describe what you do and then also a bit about New 42. And for the second part of that question, I feel like there are a ton of arts organizations in New York and in general that do way more than people realize and that New 42 is a prime example of that. So if you wouldn't mind touching on maybe the lesser known things that they do as well. Sure. Uh, and, and that's, you know, thank you for that question, because that's an ongoing struggle running an institution that does many things, because oftentimes you're known in this very kind of siloed way, and very few people know sort of the extent to which you have impact in a city, in a country, you know, in an art form, uh, when, you're, when, when you have sort of a variety of, of businesses. Um, so I'm um, president and CEO of New 42. Um, I've been in this role now for 18 months. And New 42 was started 30 years ago, and at the time was the largest urban renewal project of its kind. Um, as you know, for those of you who are old enough to remember, 42nd Street, you know, for a long time was not a particularly safe place to visit. And the city and the state uh, came together and thought about, you know, what what would happen if 42nd Street became a real destination? I mean, 42nd Street, you know, if you think about it, is the most famous street in the world, you know, one of the top three, you know, I like to think of it as the most famous, but I'm sure there are, you know, those in other countries who would argue, Um, but it is a, it's a famous destination and Times Square has for years been a huge tourist attraction and in a city like New York, you know, tourism is a big, you know, financial uh, engine that, you know, that's important to the wellness and and the health of the city. Uh, So in, in that, those early years, the 30 years ago, uh, in this redevelopment phase, um, five years into that, uh, 25 years ago, uh, they identified the new Victory Theater as the first and only theater within the what they call the Broadway box or the Broadway bow tie 
that is one of the you know beautiful, extraordinary, the you know classically you know the architecture, just a stunning theater as a theater solely dedicated to kids and families. Um, and New Victory Theater has been in existence and thriving for uh, 25 years, and and we see um, 100,000 people a year, 125,000 people. It, it's you know it, it's an extraordinary um, story. Um, what's interesting and, and unique about New 42 is that because of our relationship with the city and the real estate, uh, because of that relationship, we are able to underwrite the tickets at New Victory. So for school performances, uh, tickets were $2 25 years ago, and 25 years later, they're still $2 a ticket. For public performances, they're a little bit higher, but they range from $15 to, to $25. Um, and, you know, honestly, if we had a family come to us and said they couldn't swing it, we would figure out a way to get them in. So, you know, it's, it is very meaningful to run a theater in the heart of the theater district um, that is really about accessibility and um, equity across the cities. So that's um, that's New 42. Um, and then 20 years ago, um, we built this extraordinary space to incubate work, uh, which means we built studios. Um, these studios, and if you haven't been, I invite all of your listeners to come and call for a visit. Um, they are the footprint of a Broadway stage. So they are these tremendous spaces. Um, they have glass, uh, floor-to-ceiling glass windows. Um, it was, as, as the history goes, Michael Bennett, who was the brains behind a chorus line, uh, told uh, my predecessor that we needed a space in Times Square for artists to incubate their work, to rehearse their work, but at the same time be inspired by the street. And, and so these floor-to-ceiling windows overlook all of 7th Avenue and 42nd Street, and you are, you know, you're looking at people and tourists and, and marquees, and it's a, it's a very exciting place. Um, and we've, you know, the, the shows that have come through the studios are, you know, every show that's been, you know, nominated for, you know, uh, best play or best musical at the Tonys, uh, you know, it's a who's who of, of Broadway shows, off-Broadway shows. Um, we are committed to subsidizing our rates for nonprofit theaters and dance companies. Uh, so it's a, it's a composite of, you know, advocacy for 42nd Street being the catalyst for this redevelopment at a really interesting time in the city, late 70s, a lot of poverty, um, a lot of crime. Um, and out of that came the birth of, you know, this extraordinary theater for youth and families, the studio building for artists, and the advocacy work for the city. It's interesting because it sounds like New 42 is no stranger to um, uncertainty, if that makes sense. Like just thinking about this idea that 30 years ago, they're looking at this street and like saw this future. I'm curious during this time, you know, the name of this podcast is The Big Intermission. So the idea is that this is a pause and then it's coming back. And so I'm curious during this time, uh, one, how New 42 has been adapting its uh, projects and what it does. And two, like if, if there is, if there are conversations at New 42 about when theater comes back, what might change, what it might look like, what maybe it should be like. It's interesting that you call this a pause because I think that's right. I think that's, if you're looking at what's happening in the world, pause is the right word. I don't think we at New 42 ever thought of it as a pause though. I think we looked at it as, okay, the um, 
the playing cards have changed. Like this is, you know, but we've got to keep going. I think the organizations that have looked at this, you know, we're on 10 months as of today, actually, the 13th of January. Um, I think people who looked at, who have looked at uh, these 10 months, and I understand why people do, it's not a criticism, who looked at it as, okay, we're going to hold our breath and we're going to come back versus those who said, I don't know if this is going to be a three-month issue, a six-month issue, or a year, like, or five-year. We're just going to move forward because the landscape has changed. I think, A, it's a sign that those organizations are flexible and nimble, which is always a good sign for a nonprofit, and that they were willing to address what was coming at them. I understand there are organizations that were paralyzed by this, especially the, I mean, who, and Broadway has never been closed for ever in the history of Broadway. We have never been closed uh, to this extent. So I, I get the idea of let's just hold our breath and get through it. But I think ultimately that, I think those organizations are going to have a harder time coming back. Um, so I say that because we shut our offices on March 13th, Friday the 13th. And we knew that the world was about to, you know, really, um, uh, the, the world was moving from an active destination, whether that be an office or a school, to everyone being at home. And so what were parents going to do or caregivers when they're trying to work and you've got one, two, three, five kids running around behind you? So we, um, and it's a credit to the, entirely to the team, came up with something called Arts Break. And Arts Break are a series of interstitial arts activities that are thematic. So on Monday, you would get an email saying, this week is about percussion. And then for the five days of the week would be a one hour, 90 minute, it really depended, uh, something related to percussion for that week. And we are, we certainly have an online presence. We have a website, we have strong social media, um, but it's not like we're the Khan Academy. You know, we're not a place where people go to for, you know, 100% of their entertainment, but the world had changed. So in that first week, we had something like 25,000 views of this work that we had never done before, the no history of doing this work. And we are now um, approaching 800,000 views. So here you are, you know, 10 months later in a, in a season where we see a live audience, we're talking about, you know, 100,000 plus. We're now probably by March gonna reach a million. Like, you know, it's not that we're not gonna go back to being a live theater because that's who we are, but there's a lot of learning in there. Like, who are these million people? You know, are they local? Are they national? Are they international? Are they rural where maybe they don't have access to the arts? Are they international where they don't necessarily come to New York? Is there a role for this? I mean, I suspect that when we come back, and, and I know it just from my own sort of personal, you know, experience, that people long for coming. I mean, I, I think when the theater's open, we're gonna be slammed in all the best ways. I think there is such a longing for interaction and live performance. So I don't think our numbers are gonna be quite as high with our online content, but our online content, if access and equity is our mission, then our online content is getting into communities that we wouldn't otherwise get into. So if we had not done this, you know, we have on a very practical level as just a sort of a leader of a, you know, that's a business, we've got, um, huge brand recognition. You know, we have many more people knowing New Victory and New 42 than, than they did before. And, and so the goal then is to keep the online work going, probably not to the same degree moving forward. Because I do think we are reaching people we otherwise would never have reached. I think those who want to come will come. And, and, and personally speaking as a parent, 
you know, if my, after this pandemic is over, if my child doesn't have to be on a screen for the next five years, I'd be very happy. So I, I get all of those contributing factors, but I do think we are getting our work. And, and I have to say, all the work was new. We did not pull things out of archives of, of trying to, you know, find online content. We were very responsive. And I think part of our success is that we were one of the first arts organizations. We were out Monday. I mean, Monday the 16th, we were out with our work. I mean, that's incredible leadership that by Monday you're online. And so I'm curious how those conversations came about and what advice you have for leaders in this time and what you've learned from this experience. Yeah, and these, you know, there are words I can't say anymore, like, you know, uncharted waters or unprecedented, or I mean, I just feel like I went, wow, I just, you know, I just can't do that anymore. But that, but that is the truth. I mean, I, I do think um, most of us are in jobs that we didn't anticipate. You know, I, you know, I was prepared to run New 42 as a leader of an organization. I had done it at another institution. I, had, I mean, I understand the general parameters of board development and fundraising and mission work. You know, I, I, you know, I, I feel like I can check most of the boxes of, of what at least my experience leads to running an institution. We were all thrown into the deep end without a life vest. And, you know, I credit an incredible senior team of people coming together. So, you know, my recommendation to leaders is this was a good example of how I think many people in leadership positions feel like they're always supposed to have the answer because they're, you know, the president or the CEO. And this was a really good exercise in, in saying to people, I don't know, like, I, 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 I think this is right. What do you think? You know, let's, let's think about this together. It, it was a, a, a sea change for me because I'm used to being in the position where people come to me uh, for an answer. And they don't really want the president of the institution going, mm, I have no idea, like, good luck, you know. But I, I think it's healthy to be able to turn to your colleagues and say, this is the problem. Or, or let's think about what it's like. All right, so we have thousands, hundreds of thousands of kids home from school. Okay, most people don't necessarily want to be with their kids <laughs> seven days a week, 24 hours a day, right? All right, what can we do to maybe ease that? And what is it that we can do, New 42? So we weren't trying to create something. And that's the other thing is I do think there were people trying to create things that were really mission drift from their organization. And, and I think everything that we created was directly in line with our work. We also have an extraordinary body of, of teaching artists who are our core around the thinking behind the content. You know, we, you know, and, and they're used to thinking that way. They're, you know, they're teaching artists who, we might say to them, we have a show on puppetry and the revolution. You know, what, how do we bring that to life? And, and they are just extraordinary artists. So I think, the, the, I think being nimble is easier to say than do. Um, because we are, I think, mostly creatures of habit. And, and this was not a habit like what, you know, we've never been through this before. So I couldn't necessarily rely on, oh, remember that time where we had, you know, incredible budget cuts in 2008 or even, you know, the tragedy of September 11th, it was an event that you then had to come out of that event. We're an event now where thankfully, I think we might see an end in the future, but two months ago, a month ago, we didn't think that there was an end in sight. Um, and so it, um, it, it, keeps you, uh, it keeps you busy. Totally. I know that you were trained in conservatory and you have a master's 
in arts education, I believe. Is that the name of it? I have a I have a MA in theater education from NYU and a, a master's in theater from the London Academy of Music and Dramatic Art, which is my conservatory training. Yeah. So how have those informed your leadership style, whether that's in the context of COVID-19 or just generally speaking? Yeah, I think it, it could only sort of help. I mean, I, I as far as the COVID, you know, layer of, of leadership, um, I credit my conservatory training with, I mean, these sound, are going to sound silly, but I don't actually think they are that silly because if you don't have this skill, <laughs> it's not silly, right? Which is, I think that the training gave me the ability to um, read a room. And I, I, I have watched colleagues, colleagues of mine and then people who are, you know, uh, you know, senior leaderships where it's like if they just had read the room slightly differently, they would have had a, a very different outcome from their ask. You know, I've been in meetings before where I see someone dig in and want something and I, I can observe the conversation and know the person well enough that they're trying to appeal to that they're never going to get. With, I, I just watch it. I'm like, wow, if you just actually stop talking and come back, you know, it's, you know I've always thought to myself, um, it's not what you ask for, it's when you ask for it. And I think that's a skill that I learned in, uh, in my conservatory training is, you know, reading a room, reading a, you know, obviously you read an audience, you read your actor, you know, and I, and I think that was enormously helpful. And, and then the other sort of traits that come out of conservatory training are things like, you know, you know how to like shake a hand and stand up straight and, and speak, you know, in a fairly articulate way about something you're passionate about, um, that you make eye contact, um, that you are in fact passionate about something. So, you know, I'm a product of strong arts education and the arts and that makes it very, you know, my elevator pitch, you know, if I had one is very genuine to who I am as a person because it's so real to who I am as, as an individual. That's a perfect pivot because I wanted to talk with you about arts education as well. Something that you and I talked about before this interview on another phone call was that there's this whole generation or group of kids now who are having limited in-person arts education, at least for a year. And the impact of that can be huge. So I'd love to hear what your thoughts are about how to combat what's going to probably be a real loss in, or maybe it won't be, maybe it's not a loss in arts education, but a loss in in in-person arts education. Well, I don't separate out a conversation about arts and arts education. I think they are, in fact, the, they should always be in the same um, breath because you wouldn't have the arts without arts education. And I think to silo them out is a mistake. Um, and I'm not suggesting that's what you did. I'm just saying that I, in my <laughs> mind, they're, they're not separate. Like totally. when I think of arts and culture, arts education is in there. Um, I, you know, it's, it's an ongoing frustration and concern of mine because we know from the data that high-performing schools have arts programs and low-performing schools often don't have arts programs and that there's a correlation between poverty and high and low-performing schools. So not only are we talking about access to the arts, but we also can identify kids in communities that have limited access to the arts. And if we know, and we do from our own research, that the arts lead to a much greater 
investment in life than those who don't participate in the arts. So as an example, we know from the research that James Catterall did that you are more civically minded, that we know that people with a strong arts education background vote more. We know that they volunteer more. We know that they do better in school. Like we know these things, yet we don't seem to remember that when we're creating a curriculum or a structure for schools. And I, you know, I, I've worked long enough in this field to have great empathy for educators. And I have a huge amount of respect for principals and for teachers and educational administrators. You know, they will say to me, Russell, you realize we have 10 state mandates and we have money for six of them, right? So it's, but it's a priority, you know, in my mind, the arts are in fact on the same level as, you know, reading and writing. And, and so for the kids, uh, it's not dissimilar to where we were in the late seventies, where uh, the city was near bankruptcy and there were no, there was, you know, zero arts education happening in the schools. And that was really the birth of arts pro arts education programs coming out of cultural institutions. So the late seventies was really the beginning of all of the cultural institutions in New York extending a sort of a branch to the schools. I think we're going to see that again. The Department of Education, both locally and nationally, they have no money. I mean, they've been decimated. And so I imagine, much like it was in the 70s, organizations much like mine will step up through their own fundraising to fill the gap, quite honestly, that the schools should be filling, but they just don't have the, the, the capability of doing that, um, which is wrong. And, and, and the reality is, you know, some of our schools, where money for the arts comes from, is in the, in the parent association. So you've got, you know, I won't name them, but there are public schools in New York City that are as good as any private school. They tend to be very wealthy schools. And, you know, it's nothing for a, a parent association in New York City in some of our schools to raise a half a million or a million dollars. That goes a long way for a spring musical and an art teacher and a band teacher. But if you're in a community where, you know, the, the PA, they're not raising anything, um, th that's problematic. So, so, it, so the access and equity issue that existed before COVID is going to be, uh, uh, will still exist post-COVID and will be worse. Because you've done a lot of fundraising. Uh, when you're fundraising for education-oriented programs, what, what is often sort of the elevator pitch or top line thing that you say to people to illustrate just like how necessary arts education is? I think the conversation, you know, it obviously it depends on the person and it depends on what they're interested in. But if you talk about the current state of our country, right, and today of all days, right, I mean, where there's a lot going on, you know, in early January of 2021, um, I would hazard a guess that we are here because there is a lack of imagination, a lack of understanding how to respectfully push back and ask questions and reflect and assess what's happening. And, you know, there are a million ways to get those skills. I get it. But I do think uh, an arts education and an arts background does give you the perspective of understanding the world might be slightly larger than you. And, and these are the kinds of questions you should be asking authority. And these are the kinds of things you should be thinking and feeling. Um, you know, I, it's, I don't mean to simplify the time we're in by, you know, had everyone had the arts, we would be very, it would be different. But, you know, I don't know. I think we'd be better off. I have to, you know, I have to believe that. I believe that. I mean, arts is about empathy 
building and creating and putting yourself in someone else's shoes. And I think a lot of people have not done that. That's right. Reason. And that's how right. it's definitely part of why what's what's happening now. Uh, do is does New Victory have like a rollout plan for arts education for when this comes back, or is that just totally carriage before the horse because the timeline is still a bit? No, no, I should have said that earlier. So that's the other pillar. So we have the studio building, the New Victory, the advocacy work, and our arts education program. We are in fact the largest provider of theater arts to the Department of Education. Um, I, you know, I would before I started New Forty Two, I would always send people to New Forty Two as the model for excellence in arts education. Uh, in the performing arts, uh, it really is, and I, I, you know, I'm not just saying it because I'm I'm there. Um, I think it's you know widely held as and hugely respected for the work that that we do in the schools, um, and thankfully, you know, I mean, you know, I'm so thankful that we we do this work and have such an incredible team of people doing the work, because the the gap this year is just tremendous. In fact, we um, we don't charge a lot for our programming. I'm not a huge fan of free programs. I I tend to think there's oftentimes there's no value monetary value attached to them. Um, so I've not usually in programs that I've run ever, you know, pushed for free programming, but this year it, the circumstances in the DOE were so dire that um, we went to the staff and to the board of new 42 and they agreed that we would underwrite a hundred percent of the cost. So any teacher that wants to participate in new 42 this year, we hope to expand it to next year. Cause I don't think next year is going to be that much better. Uh, it's all of our work is, free of charge to them, a huge cost to us that needs to be raised, but free to um, uh, the teachers and students. Wow, that's amazing. That, I feel like that's probably generally unheard of, that level of. It's just hard for arts organizations, because arts, then how are arts organizations paying their artists? You know, we're, right. uh, you know, we're out there every day fundraising uh, to make that, you know, to, you know, to uh, sustain that, you know, to be able to fund it. Um, but you're right, no, it is, it is unheard of. Wow, that's awesome. Uh, this is sort of jumping back to leadership. So apologies for the jumping, but uh, I just think it's so incredible to be a leader during this time. How have you kept people, you know, employees, staff, the artists, um, audiences, how have you, how's that communication been? How have you kept people's hopes high? while still being, you know, realistic and straightforward, what has that been like? You know, my general rule is, you know, more communication is better than less communication, right? And I think we have been very transparent with where we are in the process. We, um, we, got, we applied for the, the payroll protection plan um, and received it. We were one of the first out of the gate to get it, which was huge budget relief for us, which allowed us not to do immediate. So if we um, closed our offices in March, March to July, we were um, fairly solid. You know, we were able to maintain. And then in July, we had to think about making some staff changes. And with that was literally that process included going by each staff, like what are they doing? Could they do something else? Could we do a job share? Whereas I have colleagues in the field who gave everybody a 50% pay reduction or just said, we're laying off 50% of the staff, like there's nothing we can do. And I just didn't want to do that because A, it, if you think about it, and I knew, I didn't know how long it would be, but this is still a temporary condition that we're in, you know, situation we're in. It gets expensive to lay, I mean, it, because you have to eventually then hire them back or find new talent. I mean, it, it can, 
it, there can be a cost on the back end that is far greater than what you might see on the front end. Uh, so we did not do massive layoffs. We did not do you know huge pay reductions. We did do pay reductions, uh, very few layoffs. We did furloughs because it was important that people keep their health insurance during a health pandemic, and we did job share. And and we were as you know as transparent as you can be. There are legal issues, and there are all kinds of reasons why you have to. Um, you know, it, there's a timing issue involved, but I think keeping transparent, um, giving people opportunities just to talk, like where there are opportunities just to hear from people and they're not hearing from me, we're just listening to what or what's going on with people. Uh, I think there are um, opportunities for people to come together socially. So we did trivia, we did a Halloween, you know, we do a series of trivia games, we do Halloween, you know, Halloween event, holiday party, a sing-along, you know, I think any opportunity for people to come together. I'm concerned about um, our staff who are completely isolated. You know, it's 10 months is a long time. And I think it's one thing if you're coming home or you're at coming home, I don't know where you've been, but if you're in the space with, you know, a family member or your, your partner and spouse with kids or a dog. But I, you know, I, I worry about the people who are completely on their own. Um, 10 months is a long time to, to be isolated. So I think we've been very open with people about where we are. Um, I've not tried to paint a rosier picture than it is. Um, and we've kept and we've kept our work going. And we have an extraordinary board. You know, I, I will say that we have a tremendous board chair in Fiona Rudin. We've got a strong board. Um, we, I think we're lucky, but I think we also created our luck. I mean, we, those early days in March were brutal. I mean, the, March 13th to probably early May, we were working seven days a week, 20 hour day. I mean, it, you know, we were on the phone with each other at 11 o'clock at night trying to figure out what, I mean, there was no phoning in those early days of the pandemic. Yeah. And it paid off. And it, yeah. and it paid off. Especially if you transition so quickly to online arts. Uh, I imagine that was just around the clock, adapting and creating and revising and, you know, rinse and repeat all over again. Right. But it did give people something excited to look forward to, as opposed to, you know, there were some organizations that didn't pivot, so they were just laying everybody off. And then it was like, well, what are, you know, like, what do we do now? <laughs> you know, like right. and, and I think because we had a product we were delivering on that kept people engaged. Right. I'm sure, no, I'm sure that's true. What haven't I asked you or what are people not asking you that you would really like to say right now, whether it's about, again, New 42, the pandemic, arts, arts education, all, all of the above. I think the, the one area that I hope we've learned from and we come out stronger is the work around anti-racism. You know, that, that has been a, a huge uh, piece of the work that we've been doing at New 42. So in addition to all the artistic content we've been generating, we've been you know, spending hours and hours and hours looking at our practices. You know, what are we doing? What do we need to change? What do we want to change? Um, how will we come back stronger? You know, what will our season look like in the upcoming years? that maybe it didn't look like before. I mean, one of the astounding um, stats out there is, you know, theater for youth and families in the US, it, it's in the 90 percentile, I forget the actual number, are developed by white creative teams. Even though the artists might be artists of color on the stage, the creative teams are largely artists who are white. And, and, I, and that's why LabWorks, our program is so important to me because it, it, it's about creating and incubating and supporting new work by artists of color. But we have to come out of th this 
you know, if six months from now, when the world is back, when theaters are open and people are, and revenue starts to come, you know, I think there's a, I can imagine it, right? Thankfully that I couldn't imagine six months ago, but I can imagine it now. I think the travesty of this all would be if the world came back and everything we've learned about our anti-racism work, our white supremacy, our BIPOC art, if that somehow gets lost because of the energy of coming back. And, and, I, and I, I've talked to colleagues and I think there are a lot of people who are concerned with that as well. Um, and I'm, I'm committed to making sure that doesn't happen at New 42. I mean, we, our seasons will look differently. Our staff will look different. The way we do business will look different as a result of what's gone on in not only at New 42, but just in the country. I mean, it, it, you know, we've seen, you know, in one day we've seen the, the very best of, you know, voter turnout. And then in later that day, you see the absolute best, worst in, you know, the human condition. So it's, you know, there's a, there's a lot, I mean, being a, leader being a person being a dad I mean, it's like a complicated time was there anything that came out of the anti-racism work that surprised you i think the um yes um you know growing up in a very liberal household with very liberal parents and siblings and grandparents and you know in new york i thought that i uh, understood or kind of got generally what was happening in the world and, and, and could do what I, you know, all I could to try and make things better for my colleagues who maybe didn't have, um, you know, similar experiences to mine. And I was just so off base. I mean, I, you know, and that's coming from a, a liberal, you know, you know, family where, you know, we, uh, I didn't experience a lot of prejudice growing up from my parents but it didn't mean there weren't all kinds of other things happening. And so, um, yeah, I've learned a tremendous amount about, you know, listening about the lived experience, um, about um, the struggle of wanting to say the right thing when you don't have the vocabulary to say it. And do you say it anyway at the risk of offending someone as opposed to not saying anything? And I think what I've come out of this is, I'd rather risk saying something and get it wrong than being quiet. Um, and I know in my own family, my daughter's school talks a lot about, you know, bystander training. And that's a, you know, I hope that New 42 and our staff, you know, I hope that becomes a real piece of, of you know, what we think about when we're colleagues, you know, because oftentimes we are the bystander. Um, and what do we do as the bystander? And, and I think we have to step up with that. And, um, our job descriptions now include, every job description includes uh, a, a part of your job is participating in our anti-racism work. We're creating a, a learning think tank for the entire staff where we come together monthly and we either read articles or you know, read a book or have a guest speaker come in. In addition to six subcommittees looking at everything from the language we use in all of our materials to our accessibility of our buildings, um, to our board, to who we're going out to for funding. So I, I, I'm, I'm proud of the work we've done so far. We're not there yet. We still have work to do, obviously, but we've put the pieces in place to move the needle. What advice would you give to other people who are working through anti-racism work right now in the theater slash performing arts world? The first thing that comes to mind, and this is a tough one, is I think people have completely overpromised. 
not knowing what it takes to do this work. And I think it'll, and I, I, I'm curious where we're, you know, we should reconvene in a year and have the same conversation because I'll be curious to see where people are a year from now. I, I think people were very quick to come with anti-racism statements on their websites to make all kinds of proclamations that I don't know that they're going to be able to see through. And I think what we've done, and I, you know, who knows, we might be in that same category too, but I don't, I don't think so. I think we've been very thoughtful around what we say the work needed to start internally and not externally. And I think some organizations reverse that. And I think they went out quickly externally without any real work happening internally. It's the hardest work I have ever, ever done. My last question is just, what are you most excited about for when theater comes back? To go to the theater. I just want to, I just miss it. You know, it's a, you know, I would go to the theater three nights a week. You know, I was, you know, it's partly it's part of my job and the other part is, you know, it's who it's in my DNA. Um, to be in a, in a in a space experiencing something with people you don't know sitting next to you and around you, you know, that sudden gasp or that or that emotional cry or that laugh or whatever. It's I think there's something extraordinary about it that's unlike any other experience. And you know, there I mean I look, I I want to go to a nice bar, I want to go to I want to have a good meal. Like there are all kinds of things I would I, I look forward to having. But I do think sitting in a theater uh, watching you know, a great piece of art is, I, I long for that. You have been listening to The Big Intermission. If you liked what you heard today, please subscribe to this podcast and leave a rating on Apple Podcasts. Once again, if you want to learn more about New Victory Arts Break, you can go to newvictory.org slash artsbreak. The New Victory is a project of New42 with the website new42.org, which will also be in the show notes. If you want to learn more about the Big Intermission Podcast, you can go to the website, which is www.thebigintermissionpodcast.com. Thanks so much, and until next time.